This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Uh, and so we're going to be talking this morning as we continue our series, uh, talking about good luck. Um, oh man, good night. Good night, y'all are slow. Let's try that again. Good luck. luck. Yeah, well, not the Bible. We're going to talk today about what the Bible says about luck, whether it's good or bad or indifferent. Uh, Is there anything wrong in believing in luck? We want to answer that this morning. Um, Last week I was watching, every now and then I get to watch some uh, sports highlights on TV, and I was watching uh, some of that Major League Baseball highlights, and I saw two similar but very different plays that happened in Major League Baseball. Both involved the batter hitting a line drive back at the pitcher. Uh, the first one I saw was pretty amazing. I watched it, and I, having, I used to play, I used to be a pitcher in high school and all, and I know what it's like to be 60 feet, six inches away from the batter when he swings the bat. And uh, in, in big league baseball, those guys are big, and they hit the ball, and it can come back toward the pitcher, a line drive at 100 miles an hour plus, right back at I mean, it's in the blink of an eye. And the first guy hit a line drive back right at the pitcher. It was like the pitcher just stuck out his glove and caught it. I mean, it was in the twinkling of an eye like Jesus came. You know, boom, there it was, and it was gone. And the batter still had the bat in his hands as he's trotting toward first base and they showed the camera shot of the batter and he just looked at the picture and you could read his lips. Did you catch that? You know, I mean, it was how in the world and a lot of people would look at that and say, lucky catch, man. The other one was another line drive happened this week earlier and a line drive by another batter, another pitcher hit back to the pitcher, comes off the bat 100 miles an hour, but the pitcher didn't catch this one with his glove. He caught it instead with his nose, and it smashed him in the face and ricocheted off into right field, and he dropped to his knees, put his hands to his face, and in his hands was a puddle of blood, and you felt really bad for that guy. In fact, a lot of people might have said, ooh, bad luck, man. So we see things like that, and we respond to those things talking about luck. Uh, Last Saturday, I was talking to a couple. Last Saturday morning, uh, they were ending their vacation, and um, they're packing up and getting ready to go, drive back up north uh, somewhere, and they they asked me the question, um, hey, which way is uh, Dunkin' Donuts? Is it north or is it south? I said, well, there's one south and there's one north. And, uh, and they, they said, well, we got to go north to, to turn our keys in and so forth. Uh, we'll stop at the one north. Well, I had driven by Dunkin' Donuts earlier that morning. And if you've ever driven by Dunkin' Donuts on a Saturday morning uh, here in the summertime, you know there is a three-mile-long line of cars trying to do the drive through there to get donuts to take home eat on the way home. And they said, we're going to stop by Dunkin' Donuts and get some donuts to, t- to eat on our way home. And just without thinking. And that's where a lot of our problems come in, by the way, of things that we say and how we respond to things. We respond and we say without thinking. And I, without thinking, they said, we're going to stop by Dunkin' Donuts to get some donuts to eat on our way home. And I said, good luck with that. You know, by the time you get your donuts, you could have been to Philadelphia, you know? (laughs) The deists 
of the 18th century. If you remember your U.S. history, I remember being taught, uh, I think in elementary school, about deism and how some of our founding fathers were deists. They were men who believed in a supreme being. They believed in a God. They believed in a master designer. They didn't want to call him Jesus or anything, but they believed there is a God who designed this world, who created this world, and then pretty much what he did was it was like he took a, put it, had a top and he, and he spun that top and let it go and it just continued to spin and, and spin and, and whatever happened on the earth he wasn't really concerned with. He wasn't going to intervene, wasn't going to interfere, wasn't going to get his hands involved in the affairs of man. He just kind of sat back in his rocking chair, picked up a magazine, and since creation has just let it go. He doesn't get involved well, I think about those type of people who believe that kind of thing about a God and say, well, they must believe in luck. Because what else, what else could cause the things that happen in your life and mine and in the world's um, uh, 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 systems today if it wasn't luck? If God's not involved, then who's causing these things to happen? So it must be by chance. Um, cultures in, in this world, and so many of our cultures, are built on animist religions. What are animist religions? Those are the religions in this world that worship the creation instead of the creator. Animist religions, those cultures are immersed in believing in omens and, and luck. You who are going to Helene in a couple of weeks will find yourself in a culture that has tried to, to combine Christianity and animist religion together. So they have lots of superstitions in those places. They believe in luck. The, the Chinese, for example, if you move to a Chinese neighborhood, if you lived in a Chinese neighborhood, where, like in Chinatown and different cities, the Chinese have, they've discovered in those neighborhoods that houses whose addresses have the number four in them. My house has a number four, 3843 is my house number. If I lived in a Chinese neighborhood and I wanted to sell my house, Another Chinese person would not buy my house. Why? Because it's got a four in it. What's wrong with the number four? Well, the number four in the Chinese language is the word she. It's pronounced she. She is the first letter in the Chinese word for death. And so they don't want to have a house that has any kind of relationship with death. You buy that house, you may not get out of that house. So they, those houses don't sell in Chinese neighborhoods. Why? Because they believe in this kind of bad luck. It's very unlucky to have the number four in your address. I bet some of you, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I guarantee this is true about some people in this room. When a month comes along where the 13th day of the month falls on, the fr on a Friday, some of you get the heebie-jeebies. Some of you wonder what in the world kind of bad thing is going to happen to me because you believe in something about the number 13, Friday the 13th, and superstition. It's a type of false religion. It's based not in biblical teaching, but it's form of a form of animism. Uh, certainly atheists, we've talked about the deists and some animists, and, and atheism, which is a belief in no God, they have to be believers in luck, don't they? Because whatever happens, happens by chance. Que sera, sera, you know? And, and who knows what's going to cause things to happen? They just happen. 
If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and I would say probably the majority of us here are this morning, you may or may not be, but if you are, you also believe because you're a believer in Jesus, you believe that he is God, and as God, he is Lord, and as Lord, he is sovereign over the universe. And if you believe that, then you believe that nothing, you must believe, if you really believe in Jesus, you must believe that nothing happens by chance, everything happens by providence. Yet even Christians, we who believe in Christ with all our hearts, have this little bit of belief in luck, don't we? But should we? I was driving earlier this week. I don't know if it was Monday, what day it was. I think it was this week. And, and I just recently bought a truck. I, have a, I, bought a, I bought a brand new pickup truck. If you want to see it, it's sitting right out there, all pretty and shiny. How long it will last that way, I have no idea. It almost came to an end earlier this week. I was going home from work here at, at church, and uh, you, you work other than Sunday morning? Some, some weeks I do. And um, that was a joke. And um, I was on my way home at 5 o'clock Sunday afternoon, and, and Charlie, I was headed up there, and I was going right there at the light at Satterfield Landing Road, where it's TW's Tackle and, and, uh, and so forth and all that right there, and, and, and New York Pizza Pub on the right. And I'm coming up there, and I look in front of me, and there is a utility trailer loaded down with, with, with uh, pressure-treated lumber, not hooked to any kind of an automobile rolling over in my lane, coming at me, you know? And um, there, was a, there was a lady beside me, and it kind of cut across her lane first, so she went on by it, and I just stopped. You know, and I'm gripping my wheel of my truck thinking, Lord, this is a brand new truck. <laughs> you know, please don't let it come to its end this way. <laughs> and... God saw to it that I stopped in time and it went off the road up on the curb and stopped and, uh, and I helped uh, stop. I got out and, and the fellow who had been pulling it was in the center lane. It had come unhitched from, its, from his, uh, his trailer hitch there and, and, and so I helped him. Almost, we almost died trying with the traffic. You know, it's amazing how people, I had three people from the last gathering say, oh, I saw you, or my husband said he saw you, and I wanted to say, why didn't they stop and help? <laughs> Nobody stopped. And uh, fortunately, the deputy fire chief was coming up behind me, and he pulled up behind me and put his lights on and stopped, and we were able to get the, get it. and a lot of people would say, man, were you ever lucky? Or if it had hit me, you would say, oh, man, today wasn't your lucky day, was it? Does luck have anything to do with those kinds of things? I, I want to explain to you why I, I believe the Bible says no. Luck has nothing to do with it. We, we, it's so ingrained in our culture. You buy cards. We buy cards for, to congratulate people on graduations and, and engagements and birthdays. And, and we'll say to people, I wish you the best of luck. You know, those kinds of things to people. So it's part of our culture. But should we be believing in that? Is that what we really mean, luck? Luck, according to Webster's Dictionary, is a purposeless, but now I stop right there. When, it, when I see the word purposeless, I said can't have anything to do with God because I know God is all about purpose. A purposeless, unpredictable, and uncontrollable force that shapes events favorably 
or unfavorably for an individual group or cause. Is anybody in the Bible, can you think of anybody in the Bible who believed in luck? I know of one guy who did. His name was Solomon. It's interesting because there was a period of time when Solomon was the wisest man in the world, but there's another period in time when Solomon is like he lost his faith, his relationship with God. And, and he wrote a book in the Bible that expressed some of that, and it's called Ecclesiastes. And one of the things he wrote in there was this. He said, I have observed something else under the sun. The book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon saying, here's some things that I've seen in the world in my life. Here's another thing I've seen, he said. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race. Is that true? Sure, I've seen races where, you know, so-and-so is the favorite watching the Olympics or so, and so-and-so is going to win the race, whether it's on the track or on the ice or whatever, and the favorite falls, stumbles, trips, pulls up, pulls a hamstring. The fastest runner, Solomon says, doesn't always win the race. True statement. The strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. True statement. The wise sometimes go hungry. And the skillful are not necessarily wealthy. How many skillful people here this morning would say amen? The skillful are not always necessarily wealthy. And those who are educated, I love this one, those that have all the the letters and degrees after their names, those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. True. But then look what he says. It's all decided by chance by being in the right place at the right time. Have you ever said that when you were successful about something and, and doing something? Maybe it's fishing. You know, I've been told fishing, because I've, I've used to go fishing sometimes off the pier here. I gave it up because I never would catch anything. If you ever, if you have a boat, you want to go on a fishing trip and you don't want to catch anything, invite Rick to go along. <laughs> and people will tell me, well, Rick, it's just a matter of being in the right place at the right time. What are they saying? It's just a matter of being what? Lucky. You got to be lucky. And that's what Solomon says. It's just a matter of being in the right place at the right time. People can never predict when hard times might come. That's true. Like fish in a net or birds in a trap, people are caught by sudden tragedy. So that comes out of the Bible, Rick. So the Bible does talk about luck or things happening by chance, right? Well, you need to understand again that Much of Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon when he had wandered away from his faith in God. By the way, he wandered away from his faith in God due to the influences of the pagan wives that he married. He didn't look at at life during that period of time through a biblical filter. He didn't have a biblical worldview. And the book of Ecclesiastes, if you read it, it's a pretty depressing book, isn't it? Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Well, here Solomon's wrong. Whoa, whoa, Rick, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's in the Bible. Are you saying the Bible's wrong? No, I didn't say the Bible's wrong. I said Solomon is wrong. So what does it mean if I believe in luck? And some of us do and some of us don't. And some of us, it's just sort of ingrained in us, as I said. If I believe in luck, what am I saying? Number one, when I believe in luck, I accept a substitute for God. Think with me here. In the Bible, substitutes for God are called what, church? Idols. If I believe in luck, I am an idolater. I've accepted a substitute for God. And you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that idolatry is condemned throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm believing in something other than God. 
I don't want to do that. Number two, if I believe in luck, I suppose God's not in control. People carry around, they have, a, you've seen them on people's dashboards, statues hanging from their rear view mirrors, sparkly things, amulets, dream catchers. You know, all that stuff is pagan religion. Has no place in Christian Christianity. It's all pagan religion. And if, and th- and if those things, having possession of those things, you wear around your neck, whatever, can make good things happen just by having those things, then, then what is God doing? Is he just kind of up in heaven sitting in his rocker, just kind of saying, whatever? You know, God, look what's happening. Hey, you know, whatever, it's all by chance. Really? God's not in control? If I believe in luck, that's what I'm saying. Number three, if I believe in luck, I'm, I'm placing blame or credit on something non-personal. Sometimes good or life happens in my life and in your life too because, very simply, because of the choices we make. Hopefully, as a Christian, I've prayed. I've received clear direction from the Lord. I've weighed everything out. I've applied what Bible I know. And by the way, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to make right choices. Take what Bible you know and apply it to your situation, to your circumstance. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. In fact, read this with me. Let's read it aloud together. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Think about him in all your ways and he will guide you on the right paths. If you do what? If I trust in the Lord with all my heart. The psalmist wrote that God's word God's word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. If I believe in luck, number four, I view prayer then as irrelevant. Why pray? What does it matter? If I believe in luck, if life is guided by chance, why pray? Jesus taught us to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. He said, pray for God's will to be done. God's will means this. What does that mean? God has set up in your life and mine, he has set up, if you, if you can look at it this way, markers, buoys, lighthouses, road signs. God has set up all these things along the way. They are very simply commandments and principles that you find in the Bible, and those markers tell us right from wrong. They tell us how to make the right decisions, how to make the right choices. I learn God's will for my life by discovering God's word and applying it in my life. It implies that we pray for God's will to be done. It implies that he has a plan for my life. I don't believe God necessarily plans out every detail for your life. Okay, um, I, I, some people believe that every single detail of your life, God has a plan for that. I, you know, I don't imagine that if I eat beef for lunch today instead of fish, I don't stop and wonder, have I violated the will of God for my life? I really don't think that's how it works. But his plan, I, I'll tell you what his plan is for your life. Can I tell you God's will for your life? It's the same as it is for mine. You know what that is? that in my life he might be glorified. That's God's will for your life. 
Okay, whether I eat a burger today or a fish sandwich, God's will for my life is that I bring him glory. And that's the overarching plan of God. Um, the details might not be so uh, particular, but the overarching plan are you bringing glory to God. I view prayer as irrelevant. Number five, if I believe in luck, I become superstitious. I'm not going to ask you if you are superstitious, but some of us are. How many of you remember stepping over the cracks on the sidewalk? You know, sure don't want to hurt mama today. You know, so we, as we're walking to school, we don't step on the crack. And if we did, that friend that we were walking with said, oh man, I can hear her back crack right now. You know, you just, you know, superstition. Let me just say this about that. There is no room in the life of a Christian for Christ and superstition. Can't have both. None. So what do I do? If I don't believe in luck, what what should I do? Instead of luck, choose to accept God's providence. God's providence. I'm going to explain through some illustrations in a moment what the providence of God might look like. But here's the deal. If my life is guided by him and his principles... The things that happen in my life are guided, are part of his providence in my life and in this world, meaning that God moves and shapes whatever he needs to in order for me to bring him glory. Can I say that again? God moves and shapes in my life whatever he needs to in order for me to bring him glory. Let me share a few examples from the Bible, the Old Testament of God's providence. Some of these stories will be familiar to you, perhaps. Some, maybe all are not. But listen to these stories. I love these stories. Number one, I think of the salvation of Israel through Joseph. Now, Joseph is the Old Testament Joseph, not the Joseph who married Mary and, and, and so forth. Joseph of the Old Testament, one of the sons of Jacob or Israel, the favored son of that man. Joseph was so, so much favored that his older brothers hated him because he was dad's favorite. And so to take a long story, and it's a bunch of chapters in the book of Genesis, but to take a long story and kind of tell it really quickly, his brothers threw him in a pit, sold him to some slave traders, went back to their father and said, a wild beast has killed Joseph. And they had his coat of many colors that his dad had given him. They had slain a, an animal and spl- spattered its blood all over his coat to say, dad, look, he's dead. Some while a bear or something got him and tore him all to pieces and he's gone and broke his father's heart. He was like 17 when that happened. Sold into Egypt. A bunch of things happened in Joseph's life in Egypt by the providence of God that Joseph begins, he begins to, if you will, climb the ladder of success in Egypt. He climbs up and he has some, you know, comes steps back because bad things happen and then good things happen and so forth. He winds up because Joseph has been given by God the ability to interpret dreams And he tells Pharaoh what the dream that he had meant, meaning that we're going to have seven years of an incredible harvest. We're going to have seven years of famine. What we need to do is during that seven years of incredible harvest, we need to store up grain because the following seven years, we're not going to grow anything. So Pharaoh says, dude, you're smart. I like you. 
I'm going to make you number two in the kingdom. So underneath the Pharaoh, Joseph is in charge of all the government in, in Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth at the time. Meanwhile, the seven years of harvest come of plenty. They harvest, they build silos. They've got all this grain. They got plenty of grain in Egypt to get them through the famine. The famine comes. And it also in the region is Joseph's over there in Canaan. Joseph's family, his dad and his brothers and their families, and they are facing starvation. So Israel, Jacob, says to his sons, go to Egypt, here's some money, go there and buy some grain. I hear they've got plenty of grain. Go and buy some and bring it back so we don't starve to death. So the brothers go, and after a series of amazing things that happen, it's awesome to watch God at work. What ends up happening is the last time they come, Joseph they come and they meet, meet Joseph. They don't know who he is, but the last time they come, he reveals himself to them. He's, he's, he's way up in his 30s now. It's been a long time since he's been, they've last seen him. They think he's dead, probably. And he says, I'm your brother, Joseph. And he speaks to them in their own language. And it shocks them. And it scares them. Because they know, except for Pharaoh... He's the most powerful man in this country. He can have us killed right now for what we did to him. He probably ought to. If he doesn't want us killed, he can have us thrown in prison for the rest of our lives. And we'll never see our father again. And our families will starve to death because he's going to do that. And they are frightened to death. And Joseph, however, doesn't do any of those things to them. Joseph forgives them. And one of the great lines of God's sovereign providence comes out of Joseph's mouth there in the book of Genesis. As he's forgiving his brothers, look at what he says to them. As for you, you meant evil against me. When you threw me into that pit, sold me to those slave traders, you hated my guts. You wanted me dead. You wanted to never see me again. You meant it evil for me, but look at this. Here's the providence of God, but God meant it for good. What does that mean? God knew that this day would come when this famine would happen. God knew that I would be overseeing this country. God knew that I would have the resources to provide your family with food and my family, my father, my sisters-in-law, my brothers-in-law, my, my cousins, my nieces and nephews so that you would not die because here's the deal. Generations ago, God promised our forefather Abraham that through his people, through his nation, through his family, all the nations of the world would be blessed, speaking of Jesus coming. And God's not going to let everybody starve to death because God's got a plan. And God's in his providence. God had me sold into slavery so that this day could come. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God's providence showed that he was in control. A second story is the provision of a redeemer in the life of Ruth. Ruth was a young widow who chose to live with her widowed mother-in-law rather than go back to her family. She chose to live with her widowed mother-in-law. Well, having no husbands, these two women were largely dependent on the generosity of others. You see, in Israel, God in his providence had implemented a law, you can read it in, in the laws of, that Moses wrote, but a law that farmers would not harvest in the corners of their fields. When it came time to harvest the crop, they would not get what was in the, in the corners. They'd leave the corners unpicked. 
so that the poor and the needy in the community could come into the fields and what, what, what was left behind, they could gather for themselves so that they could have food. So Ruth and Naomi, her mother-in-law, Naomi sends Ruth, you need to go out and find a field and, and pick from the field. So she goes out to the field one day and she begins to, takes her big basket and she's picking corn or grain, wheat, whatever it might be. And she, she meets the owner of this field, this farmer by the name of Boaz. She doesn't know him, but he treats her very kindly. Finds out her story and says, hey, let me give you some more. And so she comes home with an abundance of grain. Naomi, her mother-in-law, when she comes in and she sees all that that Ruth has brought, she says, wow, that's way more than I expected. How did that happen? And Ruth says, I went to this field and told her the whole story about Boaz and Boaz's kindness. And, And Naomi does not say to her, Wow, Ruth, today was our lucky day. She doesn't say that. In fact, Naomi says, the Lord bless him, talking about Boaz. And then she says to Ruth, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. You see, she knows who Boaz is because Boaz is related to her family, her husband's family. And she says, that man, you don't know this, but that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. And in God's providence and God's law, it would become his responsibility to help take care of these women. In fact, it would become his responsibility, if possible, to marry the widow Ruth. And you ladies, you've read the story of Ruth. The guys, we kind of stay clear of romance stories and stuff like that. But the end of the story is Boaz and Ruth get married and live happily forever after. Naomi recognized God's providence. It wasn't luck where she went. It wasn't luck that Boaz owned that field. God was involved in it. How about this story? Another story of another woman in the Bible, the protection of a nation in the story of Esther, the king of Persia, great empire. He has a smoking hot wife named Vashti. That's Not exactly the words the Bible uses to describe her, but that's really what it says about Vashti. She was exceedingly beautiful. Well, he's been having this big week-long party. He's invited all the officials from all the the vast stretches of his kingdom from from Kush to India. I mean, they've all come, and they're having this week-long party, and there's eating and drinking, and on the seventh day of the party, he says, you know what I really want to do? I want to show off my wife to all these guys. I want to make them jealous. I want them to know the king has the most beautiful wife in all the kingdom. So he sends word to his wife, Ashley, and says, hey, sweetheart, I want you to come and, 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 and show yourself up at this party. I want you to come and be there so these guys can all see how, how beautiful you are. Well, I don't know what was going on in Ashley's life, but she wasn't apparently in the mood to be shown off, and she said no. She refused. You don't refuse the king. You won't come? No. All right, you're not my wife anymore. He divorces her. Boom, just like that. But that leaves a void in his life. He's the king. He needs a queen. But not just any queen. I mean, he's just given up this exceedingly beautiful, smoking hot wife. He's got to find another woman who is even more smoking hot. So what does he do? Well, he's the king. He do whatever he does. And he says, we're going to have a national beauty pageant. 
all over the kingdom, all the towns, all the provinces are going to have a beauty pageant. We're going to find the most beautiful women in your area. Then you send them here and I get to choose the one that pleases me the most, I think is the most beautiful. So they do this. And this young Jewish woman, he doesn't know she's Jewish. She doesn't reveal her identity by the name of Hadassah or Esther is how we know her more commonly. She winds up first place. She gets to be the new queen. Esther is a, a young woman who grew up an orphan. She was raised by her cousin, a man by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai sat in the gates there at the, at the, in, the, in the city, uh, there where the king lived. And, and he heard all the, the news that was coming in and it was going out. He hears one day that this guy Haman, who is second in command to the king in Persia, is cooking up a plan to kill all the Jews. You see, the Jews are in Persia not because they want to be. The Jews are in Persia because years ago they were captured in the, in, down in Jerusalem, down in that area in Israel and by King Nebuchadnezzar and taken up to Babylon. Then the Persians come along and they conquer Babylon and now they belong there and they're not, they're not happy campers. They don't want to be there. They're outcasts. They have a different culture, different laws, different ways of doing things. They're different and people, a lot of people don't like them because they're different and Haman is one who hates them because they're not like the Persians. And he wants to get rid of them all and kills kill them all. So he has this plot that he cooks up. The king says, oh, fine, whatever. You're in command. You're in charge. Do whatever you think we need to do. Mordecai hears about the plan to kill the Jews, and so he goes to his cousin Esther and says, Esther, please, listen. You're the queen. You've got to do something about this because they're going to kill all of your people, all of our people. Long story short, he says a famous statement that explains the providence of God in the story when he says in Esther 4.14, who knows, Esther, perhaps you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. You know, he didn't say, lucky girl, you're the queen. Aren't you lucky that you're so pretty? He says, no. He says, who knows, you've come to this position as queen for such, so that you can save your people. And the story ends with Haman being hung from the gallows that he built to, hand, uh, to, built to hang Mordecai and Mordecai being given Haman's job under the king. The king elevated Mordecai. And some would say, lucky girl, she was chosen to be, become queen, but God had made a promise long before to Abraham, the Jewish forefather, that your descendants would live forever and that from them would come the Messiah. So God wasn't about to let them be killed off in Persia. And in his providence, in his, listen, his behind-the-scenes control. And we, we know in Esther so much it's behind the scenes because here's something unique about the book of Esther. The book of Esther is the only book in the whole Bible where God is not mentioned. Did you know that? God's behind the scenes controlling all of this. He knows Esther can be elevated to this place where she can exert her influence to change the heart of the king. It wasn't luck, it was God. Then there's another story, the removal of the wicked king and the death of Ahab. Real quickly, Ahab was a wicked king. God did not want him being king over his people. His wife Jezebel was even worse. 
A prophet of God, Micaiah, they came to a battle scene and Ahab wanted to know, what do we do? How do we, how do we proceed? 400 prophets who are yes men to Ahab say, go ahead and fight, man. You're going to succeed. They didn't hear from God. They just wanted to tell him what he wanted to hear. But this one guy, Micaiah, went to him and said, God says, you go fight this battle. You're going to die today. Well, he doesn't want to believe that and he doesn't like God. And so, but he's not so sure. So instead of going out to battle and leading his troops dressed in his royal robes and his crown, he dresses like an everyday soldier. So he can't be identified. And the enemy king had told his chariot commanders, when you go to battle, I don't want you to kill anyone but the king. You find the king, you kill him, him alone. Well, they go out to battle and they're looking all over for the king. They can't find a king anywhere. So they come back and say, no king to be found. And here's where providence comes into play. Second Chronicles 18.33 says, an Aramean soldier, one of these enemy soldiers, however, randomly shot an arrow at the Israelite troops and hit the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. He says, well, we can't go fight. I'm just, I shot an arrow into the air and he let it go, not aimed at anyone in particular, but here's the deal. In his providence, God guided that arrow. And it didn't hit him in his armor. It hit him between his armor in a place where it hit him in the body. And the Bible says he died before sunset. Was that bad luck? Proverbs 16.33 says, We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. Even something like that isn't beyond the control of God. Let me, let me end with this. In everyone's life, things happen that are unplanned by us, you and me. Things happen that we didn't plan. We didn't foresee coming. Sometimes they can be very good things, can't they? Sometimes they can seem very bad, but they, here's the Christian, they never happen by chance. To believe that they happen by chance please hear me, totally takes God out of the equation of your life. And that's one place you and I never want to be. The Bible tells us that Christ has brought into submission all authorities under his rule. Didn't he say that? All authority has been given by God to me. And if you're his child, you need to understand that Jesus said you are held in the hands of your father. In the hand of your father, he holds you in his hand. And what that simply means is that nothing can come into your life, come your way without first being filtered through Almighty God. David, the psalmist, wrote these words, Psalm 91.1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God whom I trust. So instead of wishing someone good luck, let's instead as Christians, let's, let's wish them, that's wishing them nothing, by the way. Good luck, that means nothing. Let's instead offer them our prayers for God's blessing. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, change our minds and, and change the way we think and, and change our 
worldview, get rid of the idols in our lives, those things that we worship that don't belong to you, that, that are in opposition to you in our lives, so that we might practice legitimate Christianity in this world before this world that's watching is looking for light and is looking for hope and is looking for truth. And luck has nothing to do with that. So pray that we would be your people in how we respond and how we think and how we pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God. Love others. Reach the world.